Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. We're in the middle of a series of discussions about digital health and healthcare in the APEC region. In the first two episodes, you could hear more about Thailand with Farid Bijoli, GM for Roche in Thailand, and in the previous episode, I spoke with the MD, consultant and former head of health for the UK government in China at the embassy in Beijing, Ruby Wang. If you're coming in with a product, digital, and which is, if it's an AI, machine learning platform, it will have data integrated into it to form that model and those algorithms. You will have to share all of that with China in order to access. But I think the greater problem is bringing that back out. So if you're bringing your model into China and you're updating, optimizing it with perhaps ventures in China, it's very difficult to then access Chinese data to build that model further to make it applicable to the China health system and Chinese patients. First of all, really difficult to form those bridges if you're foreign and coming in. And then On the flip side too, if somehow you manage to do that, you create really great algorithms and data structures and models um, that are applicable and show efficacy and effectiveness in China, whether that's diagnostics and so on, you can't then bring that back out of China. That data is stuck. You cannot take that out. Today, we'll tune into an episode about Vietnam. The speaker you will hear from is Beth Ann Lopez co-founder and CEO of Docosan, a healthcare marketplace that aims to make it effortless to access healthcare and help find a doctor who is available in Vietnam. Beth explained the state of healthcare in Vietnam, how did she identify the need for easier search and access to healthcare providers, how is Docosan vetting clinicians on the platform, and more. Enjoy the discussion, and if you want to be notified about new episodes automatically, subscribe and they will appear in your podcast player. In the next episode, you will hear more about why is telemedicine in South Korea officially illegal. Also, do check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Now let's go to today's discussion. Beth, hello and uh, welcome to to the show. Thank you for joining this uh, discussion about digital health development and uh, the situation with the market in the APEC region. You are uh, based in Vietnam and have been there for a decade, if I'm not mistaken. So can we maybe just uh, start there? So very briefly, how come you decided to start a digital health company in this area? What kind of attracted you in that sense? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on your podcast, uh, Tiasa. So um, getting started, so I've been in Vietnam for five years at this point, but in Southeast Asia as a whole, a little over a decade. So what brought me to the region is I had joined the Peace Corps and I was born in the U.S. from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And after I finished college, I applied for the Peace Corps and they pretty much randomly sent me to Cambodia. And then for two years, I worked in a small clinic in the countryside. 
And I, yeah, lived with the host family. Um, I was the only foreigner living there. I learned how to speak Cambodian fluently because not a lot of other people spoke English. And I just thought it was the most interesting and cool place. And so it was just supposed to be two years in the Peace Corps. And then after I'd go back to the U.S. and kind of have a normal life. But I found that I liked Cambodia so much and I liked working in development. I liked Southeast Asia and potential to have an impact at this kind of very interesting period of time um, that the region is in. And so I just kind of stayed ever since. And so that is originally what brought me here. You started a company called Dokosan, which is a healthcare marketplace that helps doctors grow their practice and focus on providing quality care. So when people go to Dokosan, they can search for the provider that they need. If we go on the beginning of the story, how did you detect uh, the problem that you're solving? How do you see the healthcare system in Vietnam and in the region that you're in, especially compared to the U.S. healthcare system? Yeah, so after living and working in Southeast Asia for, I guess it was about seven or eight years at that point before I started Dokosan, I just saw patterns. I saw patterns that had a lot to do with kind of like fragmentation and just poor healthcare experience, no matter whether you were, say, like a rice farmer living in a rural area in Thailand, or even like a kind of like wealthy Vietnamese living in Ho Chi Minh City. Healthcare is difficult to access. There's not a lot of good information online, good, transparent, trustworthy information. People are still using word of mouth to determine where you can go and where you can trust. Um, there's a lot of problems, too, in variations in quality of care. So there's in, in Vietnam, especially, there's some hospitals and clinics that are fantastic quality, and there are some that are not so great. And kind of the only way that people know how to tell the difference between the two is, is word of mouth. And yeah, having lived here, just seeing how tech savvy people are, like how many youth there are, how great the internet is here. I mean, you go out to the countryside, you have like, you know, amazing 4G, you come into the city, it's, 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 it's excellent. Everyone has got like a supercomputer in their pocket, yet the health system works like something out of, you know, like the, the 1950s. It was something that didn't make any sense. And um, it seemed like it was only a matter of time before yeah, tech would be able to bring a big change to healthcare. I could do this. This would. This is something that I spent my, my life and career kind of like working towards. I'm very passionate about it. And so why not do a company where a higher mission is to make it effortless for people to access care at, at the push of a button? And so um, that's where Dokosan came from. And even the name Dokosan is a mixture of English and Vietnamese and has to do with healthcare access. It's doc is in doctor. And then Kosan is the Vietnamese word for available. So it's like doctor available. So it's all about connecting patients to a doctor who's available at the press of a button. And what kind of uh, general challenges do you see in healthcare provision in Vietnam in the last few years because of the pandemic? We saw shifts in the workforce because uh, especially nurses started leaving the profession to just do something else that's, that has more normal working conditions. So globally, even before that, we saw the projections of the increasing workforce uh, shortages and that's potentially increasing the waiting times and just general access to uh, health and healthcare. And that's a, a global problem. So what's the situation 
in Vietnam, where according to the KPMG report from 2020, Vietnam managed to improve its universal healthcare coverage to 90% of the population and targets to reach 95% by 2025. How do you, like, where's the biggest impact of that uh, that you are observing? Yeah, so I think during the pandemic, it really drove people online for care because there was no other option. And DocuSan was started in early 2020. And so the company was kind of like born in the middle of the pandemic. And we've had to cope with, you know, lockdowns and, you know, shifts in the workforce, people coming, you know, working from home and changing the way that we do things. And yeah, it was like physically impossible at some points to to really get to a, a hospital for kind of like basic primary care during strict lockdowns. And so people had to, to go online. And we started out as a doctor booking platform where you could find and book doctors across specialties and then go offline and go and get your appointment. But once the first kind of COVID lockdown started, then we, we quickly released a telemedicine function where the doctors could start online consultations. And from there, we saw that certain specialties really started taking off. For example, we saw a lot more consultations around mental health and psychology of people who are coping with yeah different kind of issues. Actually, even still today, when you know, there's no lockdown situations, things are, are, are totally normal in Vietnam now and, and, and doing great. But the trend in mental health has, has continued because people tried this new way of getting care. If you're kind of in the middle of a mental health crisis, for example, you don't have to find a, you know, a licensed psychologist and then drive, you know, halfway across town to meet them and then kind of like get talked down, you want to talk to someone right away. And that's something really powerful about telemedicine. And not only that, but um, even for just kind of like general conditions and things too, after you have a teleconsult, the doctors can write prescriptions that can be sent through the platform. And then we also work with um, pharmacies. And so they can send the medicines direct to the doorstep of uh, the, the patients as well. And so it makes it easy for them to, to get the kind of care that they need at home. Then uh, kind of after the, the pandemic situation, we had a big uptake. And of course, like, um, like, uh, mental health and, and COVID testing and stuff like that. But then we saw um, there was a big need for diagnostics. And we had seen some trends in the US and, and in other countries with companies like Everlywell and Let's Get Tested, where they brought diagnostics into the home of patients, where you'd have rapid diagnostics or self-sampling tests, uh, kits that patients could collect at home and then get sent to a, a neighboring laboratory. And so we did the same thing right here in Vietnam, where people can, you know, get tested for a wide range of yeah, conditions ranging from hormone health to, to sexual health to general like blood testing at home, send the, uh, get the results from a licensed laboratory. And then they can hop in an online consultation with the doctor and get the treatment sent to their doorstep. And so if you compare that experience of getting um, care entirely online at home, guided by a real licensed doctor to having to, okay, book an appointment, go wait in line, see the doctor, go to a separate pharmacy. In Vietnam, a lot of the times the clinics are small places and they may not have uh, diagnostics and kind of a laboratory attached. So sometimes we even have to go to a third, you know, blood testing facility to go and get tested. And so it just really resolves the issue of healthcare delivery and, and fragmentation um, through a digital platform. And it was a scary time for everyone. No one knew it was going to happen. Everyone was like, oh, there's going to be a huge like global recession. And people are still saying that now things, <laughs> you know, kind of like constantly change. The, the, the number one thing that it did for digital health is it drove people online and showed them that there 
is a new way of getting care. And uh, how many partners uh, do you work with and how do those partnerships work? So for example, one thing is to offer clinicians a platform where patients can find them and basically in the same space and just correct me if I'm like interpreting this wrong. So on the platform, they can basically connect with the patients. And then this at-home testing part, is that something that's kind of a separate thing? Or the doctors that are on the platform can, through you, say to the patient, oh, we might want to do this test. You can, uh, let's just order that. Um, So is it two services, you know, so patients would just come to you for testing or just come to you to visit the doctor or are all these services connected? They're all connected. So everything is built on top of our marketplace of third-party providers. So we work with over 2,000 licensed medical providers across Vietnam. They work in all sorts of specialties, ranging from um, family practice to um, psychology to really specialized care like oncology. And so they list themselves on the platform and accept appointments through there. And then there's um, software specifically for the doctors themselves that is called DocuSan Pro, where they can do the teleconsultations, they can manage their practice. Um, They can send prescriptions and and medical notes to the patients. On top of that, we have the home diagnostics. And so say you order an STD test kit. It's one of our our best sellers is this STD test kit that tests for um, five different unique STDs. So you order the STD test kit. You collect the sample. You get the results. It's sent to you on your phone. And then you have a positive test result. No need to panic. You just hop in an online consultation. It's included inside of the package with a licensed doctor from the network. And the doctor can then say, hey, I see, you know, you have a positive test result for, say, chlamydia. It's okay. Here's a prescription. We can get you the right antibiotics, take them over this period of time, and then we can we can go from there. It's also like very discreet, nicer than having to have like an awkward conversation with a, a nurse or someone else. And the brilliant thing about the business model is that DocuSan remains a, a third party. We're still the marketplace. We're still a software connector. We don't have to hire a single doctor or build a single clinic or compete with the medical providers themselves. We just help to connect them to patients in a new way that helps the patients to get care in a much better and convenient manner. So what kind of data do you have about the consultations that happen or the medical records that are created? Are they created uh, through the platform? So basically, what's the liability that you carry as the third party provider, but still the enabler of care? We do get a lot of interesting data. And for the company, we can work with de-identified data. So we wouldn't go in and look at an individual patient's records that is only between the doctor and the patient themselves. But what we can look at is, say, trends, like um, what are people searching for or what are common like specialties that they're booking for. And we can get a lot of insights from that. Last year, there were periods of time where we'd see upticks in COVID and we could say, hey, I mean, there's another COVID outbreak that's coming because so many people are starting to book COVID tests. Or there was a period of time where a lot of people were searching for dengue and kind of childhood flus and we're like, hey, something else is going on here. We can make sure that we've got a lot of uh, pediatricians ready for like the online consults and referrals because a lot of people are searching and booking for those particular reasons. And does this mean that you also work with the government? Like what are the restrictions or uh, obligations that you have towards reporting the data that you are gathering? Everything that you said sounds really useful for public health officials, for example. 
Um, we would love to work even closer with the government than we have before. So all of the providers on our network are private providers. So we don't connect any public um, health facilities uh, to patients themselves. But we have worked with the Vietnam HIV AIDS Authority under the Ministry of Health here. And they're, they're, they're based in Hanoi because we do a lot of testing around STDs and in particular HIV and HIV is well-managed and well-controlled um, by the, the Ministry of Health. They have whole networks of clinics that provide even like free care, free medicines. Just, yeah, like two days ago, we had, there was a patient who was inquiring about, uh, he was kind of like panicking because he was talking to our medical concierge about needing an STD test because he, he was like freaked out. He didn't know what to do. He, you know, had, had something happened to him like the day before. And so he was talking to the concierge and she said, we have this whole like network of clinics and he, she linked him to one of our clinics that could provide free post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV uh, PEP that was sent to his doorstep. And so this guy was able to get like all of his HIV like prevention medications for free and then told him, okay, just like monitor the situation. And then if you want, there's all these different places you can get HIV testing from and say like, you know, six weeks after the window period happened. And so, yeah, we, we, we work uh, in referrals in, in that kind of like um, HIV network, but kind of like beyond that, it's all focused around private healthcare. Uh, none of this is covered basically from the universal health coverage that I mentioned before. This is all out of pocket payments. It's not. It's the vast majority is out of pocket. Yeah, kind of like where Vietnam is right now, a very small proportion of people have private health insurance. The vast majority of private health transactions that are happening are out of pocket. People are not covered. It does create an interesting kind of like incentives in the private sector. So a lot of people are surprised to find that when you're using DocuSign, you can search for prices of different types of consultations and services across providers. And the providers are willing to offer their price lists because they know that most of the patients are price sensitive because it's coming out of their own pockets. That is also something that kind of like drives prices down a little bit. You don't have insurers as the major payers kind of negotiating rates behind closed doors that drive prices up for people who are uninsured. But yeah, in terms of like private insurance proliferation, Vietnam has a way to go. But I think as far as affordability in the private sector, there's a lot of different options for patients. So we have like quite a few clinics that offer consultations for less than two US dollars, which is highly accessible to you know the, the region's middle class or even kind of like uh, below that. And so our whole goal with DocuSign is to give people choices, options, transparency. There's a lot of affordable um, private clinics if that's what you're, you're looking for. And there's a lot of like high-end clinics too. And we just want to let you know what your options are to get care. And what is the relation between the private and public sector in healthcare in Vietnam? Can clinicians that work in the public sector also work in the private sector? I'm kind of wondering if you see that what you're doing is in any way disrupting the existing system? Is the public healthcare system trying to learn something about how to efficiently provide care to patients? Yeah, so health spending in Vietnam is about half and half. So about half of the market is in, covered by the public sector, and then the other half is the private sector. And the way that we kind of like see our role is, is we want to be very strong, especially in primary care specialties, like helping people get online consultations, at-home diagnostics, all this kind of like preventive kind of medicine that they, they can get without having to, you know, wait in line at a large public hospital when they don't have a severe illness. Because when you start having lots of people waiting at these kind of specialty uh, hospitals that are run by the state, you cause crowding. 
And crowding is a major issue in the public hospitals in Vietnam, especially in the, the big cities where you have um, some very fantastic doctors. People will wait in line for four hours plus to see a doctor for just two minutes. But in Vietnam, a lot of the times those doctors who are working in the, the public sector also have their own private clinics. And a lot of the patients who are going to the public sector because they don't know where else to go could also afford to easily just go and see the doctor at a private clinic or hospital, pay a fee and plug up the, the public system, which is an interesting kind of way of doing things because the doctors who have those private clinics, they're also business people. They have their own clinics, like it's got their own names on it. Usually it'd be like Dr. Naz, you know, like neurology clinic, for example. They're very proud of it. Um, they're all about building the reputation. That is one of the primary reasons that the doctors join DocuSan is they want to, to build the reputation, get seen by a wider audience of patients online and discover people um, beyond word of mouth circles. And we help the clinicians to do that. Because if you look at doctors, they're super smart people. Uh, they have highly specialized training, but they don't want to spend a lot of time on administration, managing their calendars and bookings. They don't want to spend time on marketing, or let alone hiring a marketing agency. And this stuff is, it takes a lot of their time when they're running their own private clinic. And so we say, join DocuSign and we'll help to offset some of that burden so you can focus on what you do best, which is seeing your patients. How do you approach growth of providers on the platform? Uh, the average clinician has well above 10 years of experience under their belt, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm wondering like two things, what kind of wedding you do and how can maybe younger clinicians get on the platform? Can they do that? So younger clinicians can get on the platform if they are fully licensed by the Ministry of Health. So the first level of vetting that DocuSan does is a compliance vetting. So we check the medical practice certificate of every doctor in the network, the operating license of every clinic, and also a business license to make sure that it is fully like recognized under the Ministry of Health. Because in some countries like Vietnam, that's not even a given. So every once in a while, there are unlicensed clinics that pop up and unethical practices that um, really can be dangerous to patients. And we never want to be responsible for sending a patient to an unlicensed doctor. So that layer of compliance is really important to us. Then above that, we have other types of criteria that are, are not public, but you do notice that um, the doctors on our, our network tend to have a lot of experience. But we do work with um, younger doctors too, as long as they have um, their own kind of private clinic or um, are working in a private hospital. And a lot of the times the younger doctors um, provide fantastic care. We have younger doctors who have done fellowships at Harvard, at Tulane, at all sorts of like well-regarded international institutions and then come back to be where they opened their, their practice. I think these doctors are, are super interesting because they're so passionate about um, their patients. Uh, they're passionate about growing their clinics. And it's a bit of a, a new style of doing things because in the past, the way that you would get a big patient base was you would have to, to work for a long time to get that really wide word of mouth circle uh, from people who had physically seen you before. But now that we have connecting platforms like DocuSign, you can really shortcut that time that it takes, where if you're a really good clinician, patients are happy with the care that you get, you get a lot of positive reviews, you'll appear higher in our search ranking, and then more people will see you. And so it becomes a bit of a, a flywheel that self-supports it. You provide good care, more patients will see you, and um, both sides are happy. And how do you manage those reviews? You know, when Healthcare is a little bit of a, it can be a challenging profession in the sense that errors do happen, mistakes do happen, and they can be a little bit more 
critical than, for example, in, in some other industries. So when it comes to ranking and reviews, I'm always thinking, what if there's one bad review that then kind of causes a down spiral for you as a provider, even though mistakes happen? So do you have any system of uh, managing that? And yeah, how do you prevent that then people don't just try to use those that are on the top even though that those that aren't visible yet or are just new on the platform don't even get a chance to to get um, patients yeah that's a good question and our algorithm is consistently improving as we learn more and, and experience more situations like this but we do have a moderation system to make sure there's no sort of like you know abuse uh, that, that is going on in the reviews and um, the company can step in if um, you know there's ever some sort of like dispute around a particular review but it happens surprisingly infrequently usually what when people Uh, patients aren't happy it's because of wait time <laughs> you know maybe the doctor was like overly busy on that particular day and they had a longer wait but yeah I guess like with reviews and healthcare, it is a little bit of a delicate manner because it's hard for patients to accurately assess the clinical capacity of a doctor they can't right there's a big information asymmetry between the doctor and the patient but what the patient can assess is like okay was the doctor respectful? Were they there and on time? Was the staff, was, was the clinic, you know, clean looking and orderly? And so our goal in the reviews is to give the patients an idea of what to expect when they go to any particular um, clinic. And so you'll see that, um, yeah, of course there's, there's mixed reviews on, on most, but um, I think like we have a pretty high quality providers on the platform and some of the best quality providers in, in Vietnam period on the providers and, and the reviews of them do reflect that. But for newer doctors, um, we, we give them a lot of tips on how to get more positive reviews and, and use the system so they can kind of like front load it, say by adding their own patients to the system, because it is a, a patient management platform. It's got a whole customer relationship management system in it. And so, yeah, there's there, there's all sorts of ways that, that we work with the doctors to help improve their invisibility. Currently, Vietnam is enjoying a so-called golden structure in its age demographic. So it's a, it's a younger population. 70% of the population is aged between 15 and 64 years. And I thought that was an important data point uh, for you, you know, as, a, as an internet provider. And I wonder how do you see it as a factor that impacts uh, your company and your success? Does it have an impact or, you know... What are your observations? Yeah, I mean, it has a huge impact. So our core demographic is millennials. It's not older people. A lot of the times, like when you think about healthcare, especially in the West, we think about people with like older, with chronic diseases, more complicated cases, but all sorts of people need healthcare. And um, an interesting thing about millennials in Vietnam is a lot of them have become the decision makers for their households. You have a lot of multi-generational households and in particular, like the women are the ones that are making the healthcare decisions for their families. They will make a pediatric appointment for their kid. They'll schedule, you know, like a work health check for their husband. They'll schedule whatever type of care for um, elderly family members who are living with them. And so the, the main demographic is the millennials, but then they also book care on behalf of other generations. And I think that's a really strong point 
point of the platform. We're even seeing more uh, Gen Z who are starting to use the platform too when it comes to online consultations, mental health. We have certain packages that are around birth control. And it's surprising like how many questions people have just around taking, you know, just, just basic birth control. There's not a lot of like good quality information out there. And sometimes when people go to the pharmacy or even offline to the clinic, the clinician might be a little bit too, too busy to finally ex- totally explain something to someone, especially if they're really young. There's also a lot of stigma around it. They get care online and they look online and they're Googling. And then, you know, when they're Googling, they'll find us. They'll see, you know, one of our blogs about, you know, birth control and the right ways to take it. Or I can schedule an online consult with a, a doctor. But honestly, like a, a lot of the, the care is happening, like just on chat. People are, are, are starting to book it or they're just ordering like the test kits yeah, to their homes. And so that is, that is an interesting kind of behavior that we're seeing because you do have such a young population here. And do you think that... Uh... I don't know, in the future, you could expand uh, in your focus also to maybe some other things such as offering the care to maybe less wealthy populations or how do you see the whole, so the debate around access to health and healthcare, which is very broad, you know, you can go from discussing how do you provide care in rural or remote areas, you can go to how do you provide and make care accessible to less wealthy healthy populations. How do you see, you know, the further development of uh, the company? Is it going to near near country markets? Good question. And a lot of our growth strategy is now focusing on second tier cities and of course, expanding to other markets in the future will be something that's very interesting. In starting the DocuSign platform, I didn't want it to be a solution just for, you know, very wealthy, you know, kind of like white collar workers. It wasn't something that kind of like motivated me to start something. I want DocuSan to be something that changes healthcare for the better for everyone. I want it to be a new paradigm. And so if you think about how technology has changed other industries, like um, in Southeast Asia, we have Grab, which is like a Southeast Asian version of Uber. Um, everyone uses it. It's very affordable. You can take it, you know, it, it kind of like anywhere. Yeah, if you're certainly like, you know, middle class or, or above, it's, it's, it's a great option for you. And I, I want DocuSign to be like that. I want it to be something that helps millions or, you know, potentially in time, billions of people get care in a new manner. Yeah, it's not just for the, the wealthy people. And it's one of the strengths of our business model and being a marketplace that we can offer so many different options and prices to people. Like I was saying before, we do have certain clinics that charge less than $2 for a consultation. Very accessible to most people. Of course, we have stuff on the high end as well. And we're constantly working to just give people more and more choices so they can find something that works for them in terms of convenience, in terms of quality, as well as in terms of price. Did you already uh, observe or do any research about the differences uh, among the countries in the regions? Uh, You mentioned in the beginning that you actually first moved to Cambodia and now live in Vietnam. So I'm assuming that market is also quite familiar to you. Yeah, I love Cambodia. So yeah, Cambodia is at a different stage of development than Vietnam, but I think it it does have a a lot of potential. There's a lot of people that could use a healthcare solution, a tech-enabled healthcare solution, um, especially in the private sector to get the right kind of care. Um, Same thing in Thailand. Thailand, I think, is another interesting country because they want to be a medical tourism hub of the world because they have all of these fantastic high quality doctors. A lot of them are U.S. board certified doctors that you have in, in Thailand, just an incredible kind of like health system there. Yeah, I think there's a lot of strengths and, you know, pain points in each of the markets and they're different, but it's no 
not much more fragmented than in the U.S. A lot of the times people look at Southeast Asia and say like, oh, they're also different, different, you know, kind of like languages and countries. Like there's no way you'll ever be able to, you know, kind of go across everything. But if you look at the U.S., you have 50 different states. And so if you want to practice telemedicine in the U.S., you have to get 50 different like licenses to practice telemedicine. That's fragmentation too. And you have companies that are doing it all the time. And so I think as long as you properly follow local regulations, and that's always really important for healthcare, even more so than, than other industries, because it deals with with human life and it is highly regulated. You are really compliant, you follow the local laws, you localize to the extent that is needed. I think a lot of the pain points in healthcare are universal. Everyone would like to have um, better, more affordable, high quality healthcare, no matter what country you're living in. And actually I just got back from Switzerland. I was there for a, a conference and um, it was there for, for one week. I, I went there with my husband and he's got asthma pretty bad, but usually it's under control because he's got an inhaler. So, but he forgot his inhaler in, in his bag. And so we, we fly to Switzerland, he gets there, it's freaking cold. It's like really high altitude. And we realize, oh man, we need to get you another inhaler or else you're not going to be able to, to sleep and, and breathe. It's, it's, it's a pretty big issue. And so then we're like, man, well, we need to get a prescription for it. And so he started like Googling hospitals in the area in Switzerland that we were at. And he found a couple and we didn't really know anything about them. He called them. They didn't answer. He emailed. We didn't get an answer. And he, you know, he's having trouble breathing. So we're like, ah, crap, what do we do? We'll look at a telemedicine platform. And so then we start Googling telemedicine platforms and we find that we can get an online consultation in Switzerland for 400 Swiss francs, which is uh, like 450 US dollars or something like that, just for an online consult. And I was like, oh my God, okay, no, we're not doing this. And so then I was like, okay, let's just see if this, this works. Like just open an on online consultation with one of our, our doctors on Dokosan, have them write the prescription for the, the inhaler that can do this. And then we'll take it to the pharmacy and see if it works. And it did work. So we were able to get like his asthma meds for $6 through the online consultation on Dokosan with a, a good Vietnamese doctor, as opposed to 400 Swiss francs. And so that to me is another kind of like healthcare access issue, like, it's hard to find the right hospital. Are they open? Can you just walk in? We have no idea how the Swiss health system works. So, you know, it was there for like a week. And then two, like the price was insane. Yeah, I think like no matter what country you're in, there's always room for improvements. And with a yeah convenient, uh, transparent kind of system like Dokosan, um, the sky is really the limit. That's a very interesting story for several reasons. One is that basically you were able to use the prescription from Vietnam in Switzerland. So how did the pharmacy react? I mean, at, in Europe, there's a lot of discussions at the moment and work on the European health data space that's basically supposed to enable that so that you pick up a prescription in the country that's not your residential place. But that's, you know, a whole discussion and just effort uh, in itself. And Switzerland, for example, isn't even a part of the EU. So I'm like all ears about how, like, what did the pharmacy say when you brought in a prescription that wasn't uh, written by a Swiss doctor? Yeah, I mean, so it was a, a, a picture of the, the prescription that the, the doctor had handwritten here in Vietnam. It was in Vietnamese language, but it did clearly say the medicine and the dosage and how to take it. And so he brought it to the pharmacist and she filled the prescription. Maybe if it had been for like some very like heavily scheduled um, kind of substance, like, you know, like a opioid or something, she, she wouldn't have gone for it. But, you know, the, this guy was clearly like having some some asthma issues when he, he went and gave the, you know, the, the picture of the prescription to her. And so she filled it. 
And so um, I don't know, I, I'm not familiar with the, the Swiss health healthcare system and the, the regulations or anything there. We were just there for a really short period of time. But I think it was just, you know, kindness and that pharmacist and seeing, you know, this patient had a need to get his, his medicines filled right away. But yeah, so, so I don't know if it could work everywhere, but why not though, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the patient perspective, this is something that we would hope that would be possible everywhere. Given that you came from the US to the region, what are some of your experiences with the healthcare system here and how do you compare them with the experiences that you had in the US? Yeah, so I guess like in the US, I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico. There's a doctor shortage there. Like most of the care is kind of like like the one of the biggest employers in the state is like the university and the university health system. But for my own kind of experiences, I, I guess I didn't like, I, I was young. I didn't really have too many. I remember I was trying to get an IUD once from just kind of like my, my general practitioner. And they said I couldn't get it because I didn't have a kid already. And I could only get an IUD if I had had a child. And I was like, Oh man, this sucks. And like, and then I remember like, um, when I joined the Peace Corps, I tried to get one again, and they were also like, no, it's too dangerous. We can't give you an IUD. But IUD is one of the most like effective and affordable, like, you know, convenient kind of uh, birth control for women to get. And so there was this strange kind of like, I don't know, misunderstanding or stigma about having a kind of like younger, unmarried woman who was like trying to get an IUD. And so that, I guess, like is, is one thing that comes to mind. Versus in Southeast Asia, I mean, I've, I've never had any sort of like problem accessing like the reproductive health care that I've needed. So, yeah, I guess like that, that would be one kind of difference. If you want to talk about the, the healthcare system as a whole, though, like the it's got different incentives. So the U.S. market is driven by insurers as payers and the whole healthcare system is, is pretty optimized around um, these private insurers. And so it's not optimized around patients, which is why a lot of people have issues with it. They're not the person paying for the care. So like who cares if it's convenient or if you if it's such a pain that you have to find a doctor in network who takes your your insurance and maybe they're available in the state. Maybe they're not. Maybe you can't get a an appointment with a doctor within who's in your network within a certain period of time. I mean, there's certainly like lots of issues in, in healthcare in the U.S. and in really heartened to see some great startups who are who are taking that on and a lot of startups who are bringing preventive care and monitoring into the homes of patients so there are really cool startups like levels who are promoting like home like blood testing and health monitoring whoop Noom for kind of like behavioral change in, in weight loss or inspiring companies, Everly Well, which brought um, home testing to patients. And so people kind of see that it is a healthcare system that is broken. But as an entrepreneur, when you see something that is broken, that people really need, there's an opportunity there to fix it. And I think healthcare is so cool because not only do you have the potential to solve a big problem that impacts potentially literally everyone, everyone needs healthcare at some point in their lives, have this strong um, social impact, but you can also have a very strong and good business behind it as well. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, entrepreneurship, uh, as an expat in Vietnam, how was it for you to start the business, you know, given the different culture? Um, how did the environment 
what was the attitude of the Yemen environment towards you as a founder? Did you have any trust issues? What kind of culture challenges did you encounter when building a business? And even now, when we spoke first, you mentioned that people are still asking you, when are you going back home? Because, you know, you're originally from the yeah. U.S. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's like a kind of like common thing that I've experienced throughout Southeast Asia. Even though I've been here over like 10 years, people are like, oh, when do you go home? I'm like, I am home. I'm, <laughs> you know, I guess it's, uh, I've got property here and everything. I, I don't see myself going anywhere else. But as far as kind of starting the company, I think Vietnam is an awesome place to start a company in certain ways. One is there is a highly educated talent base. So there's awesome software engineers that you can hire. So Vietnam for a long time, has been a bit of a hub for outsourcing. Um, a lot of like European and US and you know global companies would get their websites and you know apps and everything built here. And so that was already like part of the you know the job structure and training. And so then if you want to start a product company like Docosan, you go, you find these kind of um, engineers who are used to the outsourcing kind of like way of doing things, introduce a product mindset and you know there's a lot you can do. So I think like the the talent base for engineers is a super strong point. But then as far as, yeah, kind of like starting the business, like understanding the local needs and all of that, when we first started, I guess it was yeah challenging to, to, to navigate like, okay, so how do we get the, the right company set up? You know, there's a lot of like rules and laws. And of course, like you have to get licenses to here, especially like in healthcare. And so the way that we're able to do this is just, you know, people, you have to meet the, the right people. And so um, the right people we met were, was a really good law firm who um, was able to help us kind of like navigate through, you know, those trenches to be able to start like a, this new type of company, a fully compliant manner. Um, we still work with this law firm. Um, then in terms of healthcare, I think it's actually kind of interesting in Vietnam. And I, I've seen this in a lot of other countries in Southeast Asia too, where they actually trust foreign brands more than the local brands. There's been scandals in the past with kind of like, you know, quality of medicines issues of like supplement quality, stuff like that. Every once in a while you see things like this in the news but foreign companies yeah they might follow standards that are set in like you know europe or the us and have a brand to protect and so people actually do tend to protect to uh, trust foreign brands in healthcare even more than local ones so i think that is a little bit of an advantage in being someone from somewhere else coming in and starting a company I also think like it just brings a different perspective, right? Like, so I certainly like you, you have to have awesome business partners in whatever country that you live in because you have to localize the, the platform. You have to learn the way that, you know, sales and marketing works in each of these countries. But yeah, I think like, um, but if, if you look at the US, like, um, you know, there's a, a huge proportion of businesses that are started by immigrants. Um, a lot of the times they, they come from their countries and have different perspectives and come to the US and see all these kind of like new opportunities and problems to solve in a different way than maybe someone who had grown up there and had that as a status quo wouldn't have had. And I see it the same way as me coming here too, right? Like um, I see, I have like a different perspective having grown up somewhere else, experienced a different, you know, different health systems and, and all of this. But I also see tremendous opportunity in, in Vietnam, like, you know, kind of the rest of Southeast Asia. And I 
not only opportunity to, to build a great business that, you know, um, is financially successful and, and, and grows and, you know, gets good returns for investors, but also something that helps people, that helps them get care in a new way. And I think like um, given the state of development in Southeast Asia, there's an opportunity for outsized returns, both in terms of finances as well as social impact. Where do you see that uh, you are facing the biggest challenges in terms of the development of uh, your business. Uh, we mentioned earlier that you are basically just a platform for healthcare providers. You don't employ doctors, which helps you to avoid any liability in terms of clinical issues that may arise. So what do you see as the biggest challenges that you are facing as a business? Yeah, so I guess like we're coming into a period of time in which like um, growth and um, strong bottom lines are really important. So a lot of factors in the macro environment have changed, whereas like um, before and say 2020, 2021, a lot of venture capitalists were just looking for, okay, just just grow, get a ton of users, revenue will come later. That's no longer the the attitude anymore. And so now everything is about like, not only like, okay, so, you know, what is your monthly recurring revenue, but like, what are you, your unit economics behind them? What we're really focusing on is developing, you know, additional types of like products that have strong unit economics and growing in a sustainable way. And so, yeah, I think like that's the, the biggest kind of like challenge that we're, we're working on now. But there's a lot of ways of, of doing that and a lot of advantages, too, because we already have this whole network of third party providers who are using the software, paying for it. And then we have our home diagnostic kind of like test kits that have good, healthy margins and deliver care in a new way. And so it's just figuring out what is the, the fastest yet most sustainable way to grow those two verticals. Since you mentioned investors, can you share any of the experiences that you had on that front? So how did you approach looking for investment? In which countries did you look at uh, investors? And what was the, the most difficult part there? And I think it's also always interesting to hear from startup founders about how many investors that they spoke with before finding the, the first supporter. I guess it's, you know, it's encouraging for others to hear that you will hear no a lot of times before you get to a yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as a founder, you'll you'll get rejected probably thousands of times <laughs> during the course of um, your company. So, as far as investment, did our our last like public round in 2021, which was led by a Taiwanese VC called AppWorks, and they led the round after we participated in their accelerator. And they're a really interesting VC because they're active not only in Taiwan but across Southeast Asia, and they're really into AI, Web three, but they're also trying to expand in more of the countries in the region and they've even um, become LPs and um, some some local kind of uh, venture capital firms and so they have like a pretty long kind of like a like vision and timeline for themselves we got to learn a lot about like uh yeah it's just kind of like the thoughts of, of, of VCs from them and it's we've been lucky that we've had good investors with us from the beginning since then we've yeah raised additional capital I guess like uh we We'll announce like the we'll announce it like the next time when we have like a price round, but most of the investors are in different countries in Asia, and then in Silicon Valley. But it's been really great having like investors that have have been on our side because then they they can give good advice, kind of like guidance, and they also understand that you know startups are up and down. Um, it's not all you know like grow super fast and everything will be great all of the time. 
Mm. And a good investor will help you get through that. Do you have any additional advice for anyone that would want to work in the region in terms of, you know, how to kick off the business? Because one thing that I did uh, think of in terms of the difference between the local investors to the Silicon Valley investors, I imagine that someone that's local would have a much better understanding of the environment that you operate in, the challenges that you are facing, and maybe even connections that could actually help you compared to somebody that's uh, abroad. But uh, maybe that's just my wrong assumption. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, both can be useful too. It just depends on like what you're you're looking for, what stage of the business you're, you're in. So I think like we have benefited a lot from having international investors. We've got a very strong local team on the ground who are here operating. We've got a very strong local network of partners and clients and, and other people who are not just investors who are helping us to, to guide to guide us and to grow. I wouldn't look at like investors as kind of like you know the main mentors and the people kind of like you know your guiding light at all. It really should be your customers. And if you're, you're constantly paying attention to your customers, you've got a good team who are also like really paying attention attention to the customers. Like the investors will be happy anyway because you're you're focused on, on building a, a good business. And then I guess like in terms of advice of people looking to come to Southeast Asia, I think do it, try it. I am really inspired when when people from other countries come and try to do something new and bring different insights. I have a friend who recently moved to Ho Chi Minh City from, well, he, he was in Seoul. So he, he's Korean. He he did grad school at the, the Harvard Kennedy School. And now he's got this kind of like sustainable energy startup called uh, Refeed. And I think it's so cool what he's doing because they have these like amazing engineering skills. And they also see all the opportunities to kind of like transform the energy sector here. And they're coming in, uh, bringing that new perspective and, and doing it. And when you come in, you have to be, of course, like very respectful that you you didn't grow up here. You don't know everything that's going on here. There's a lot of stuff that is hard to understand. So you need really good partners that will help you guide you through it. And so when you first come to the market, you know, get set up correctly, get those like good kind of like lawyers, make sure everything is compliant. And then next comes finding the right kind of business partners who you can trust and who will work with you. I had the advantage of having been in Southeast Asia for a long time. So I have a good personal network. I have a lot of friends that, you know, have grown up in here and, and, and been here a long time and stuff too. So that was less of a challenge, but I'm really inspired when people, yeah, try something new. And I, I think like you shouldn't be discouraged from wanting to go. And, and as long as you have like good expertise and are trying to create value and doing it in a legal way, you know, like why wouldn't they welcome you? You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.